That was last week. This week, we're going to talk about, this is our last week in Jonah, and Jonah really struggles with the problem of what God does with evil and how justice works. and How, does, how, how do we live in this tension of God being good and having mercy, but also our need to see justice done? Does that make sense? That's what today is going to be about. So stay with me today, and let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your protection right now. I ask your peace, your angels to be with us. I pray that you quiet our hearts and your minds. There's a million and six things we're thinking about. God, I just pray for a, a peace and your protection so we could be present right here in this moment. And God, we pray against everything opposed to Jesus that might be seeking to interfere with this time now in Jesus' name. God, help. And all God's wonderful people said. So read with me, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. Let's find out Jonah's reaction after God gives mercy to all of these people. Read with me. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. I love this. Literally, uh, this seemed very wrong. In the Hebrew, that's the, uh, it, it means it was a great evil. And then he became angry. And in Hebrew, the idiom is he burned with anger. It burned him up. His bits were toasted. So Jonah was excited about God's message to the city of Nineveh because 40 days and you'll be overthrown was an exciting message to him. He wanted the Assyrians to be overthrown and destroyed. They had done so many terrible things. It was time, it was time for God to rid the world of this evil city and evil people. There's no way that Jonah ever imagined that he would actually, that they would actually repent. He thought that he, if he showed up, that they would just kill him. And so there's no way that he ever also wanted to introduce a scenario in which they would actually be forgiven. Right? That's the last thing that Jonah wants is, the Assyrians off the hook. And Jonah wants God to be a fierce judge, full of wrath against evil. So verse 2, this is the second time that Jonah prays. Ready? Read with me. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Ugh! Can you imagine Jonah's voice? It's like, I knew you were going to do this! Ugh! Or are you so nice? Ugh! I mean, Jonah doesn't see the irony here, right? He's stuck in the belly of the fish, lost in his rebellion and facing his own death. Jonah prays to God. God gives him mercy. Now Jonah sees the Ninevites lost in their rebellion, facing death. They pray to God, and God gives them mercy. It's like Jonah has two different gods, right? He has the God where he gets mercy when he needs it, but he wants another God that punishes evil people when he thinks they deserve punishment. This is something interesting, though, about the verse, about what Jonah says to God. He's praying to God. He's being a little bit 
cheeky. He'd been a little bit sarcastic because he's actually quoting God's words back to God. This comes from Exodus 34 when God speaks to Moses, right? God hides Moses in the cleft of Mount Sinai and says, I'm going to pass before you. And then God speaks these words to Moses. This is Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Read this last bit with me. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So Jonah just happened to leave that little part out. You ever done that or said that to your parents? You repeat back to them what the words they said to you, but you leave out something really key? Well, why does Jonah do that? Well, because Jonah doesn't believe that God is just anymore. Jonah doesn't like that God is merciful and kind and compassionate because what Jonah thinks is that there's this scale. And on one side is mercy and kindness, and on this side is justice. And so if you have more mercy and kindness, then you have less of justice, which makes sense. It's perfectly logical. That's why the scales of justice are pictured that way. If someone gets off and they're given mercy, then the person who's been harmed, they don't get their justice. Picking up what Jonah's putting down? So maybe you can relate. Maybe you've, feel, maybe you've been betrayed. You've been hurt. You've been deeply hurt by someone, and you want justice. You want them punished. Maybe you're the one who's done the hurt and you've been punishing yourself for years because you believe that you were unworthy of love. I get it. I've been betrayed. I've been hurt like that too. I remember as a kid watching America's Most Wanted. Remember that show? And there was always that, you know, it's always about how somebody killed another person, and I could never imagine why it is that, that someone would ever take someone else's life, and then I was betrayed and hurt and wounded, and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I get it now. Yeah, I understand. I, I know that the desire to see the person who's hurt you or robbed you or taken from you or abused you, I know the desire to see that person taken to the proverbial woodshed and dealt with. I know it. Now, isn't, isn't God fiercely angry when people are hurt or killed? Yes, he is. Isn't God fiercely angry when you are betrayed and hurt? Yeah, you're precious in his sight. You are God's beloved child. Doesn't God want all life protected, the living and the unborn? You better believe he does, right? God is fierce about fierce to protect children still in the womb, and children who have been born. Amen? God is good, and goodness always fights for life and against death, always. Miroslav Volf, who is a professor at Yale and a Christian author and theologian, he's from Bosnia, and he witnessed during the wars in 1996 and 97. He witnessed during those times of war 
200,000 of his fellow Bosnians be killed and the ethnic cleansing is there. So Miroslav Volf knows about anger. He's lost family members. He knows about God, him wanting God to be judged. Any, any idea that God is just this Santa Claus or a doting grandparent that just sort of winks at harm and just doles out presents, that's not going to fly with Miroslav Volf. So the question is, is how can, how can God be good, be just and merciful, or merciful and kind, and yet also just? That's a good question, right? How does that work? Now, Jonah has a very simple solution. Jonah wants for God to set aside his mercy and kindness so that God can be just and take care of these evil people. But Miroslav Volf points out, uh, helps us understand where Jonah might be a bit off. He writes this in his book, Free of Charge. If God were a pitiless judge, then God would deal with wrongdoing by punishment. But as our wrongdoing multiply, punishment would pile upon punishment and life itself would be beaten to the ground, destroyed. Punishment is a very rough and wholly inadequate tool for dealing with wrongdoing. But the problem is, is that Jonah didn't have Miroslav Volf sitting next to him. Jonah is just mad. He has information in his head about God's mercy and compassion and faithfulness. He's experienced that himself. But he doesn't yet understand that the God of mercy who loves him is also the God of mercy who could love the Assyrians. Again, it's like he has two different gods. The God that deals with his own misdeeds and then the God that he wants to punish everybody else. So Jonah continues with his prayer. Read with me, verse 3. Now, Lord, please take away my life. Now, you got to read that again with a lot more wine in your voice. Now, Lord, please take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I'm done. Clearly, Jonah has something way more important than God, right? He's talking to the one who gives life, and he's saying, you're not enough, I need something else. And if I don't get that, I'm done. So Jonah didn't get his way. Now he wants to give up. Jonah was following God so that Jonah would get what Jonah wants, not what God wants. And that's his problem. Jonah thinks that his story is about him. The whole Bible, it's not about the people in it. It's about God loving and caring for the people in it the Bible. Your life, ultimately, it's not about you. It's about the God who loves you and praises you and cares for you and adores you. Does that make sense? No one's going to go to heaven and say, here I am, I made it all by myself, aren't I magnificent? Right? Amen? When we get to heaven, what we're going to do is we're going to praise the one who rescued us, who gave us life, who forgave us. That's Jesus. But there's times that we don't like this fact. In fact, we hate that life isn't about us. <clears throat> I would much prefer to life be about me. 
to go my way all the time, for all my plans to work out on my timing. Uh, for no pain or suffering or discomfort or my schedule to be altered in any way that I don't see fit. I would love for there to be a money in abundance, for my heart to be changed with no pain or suffering or effort, and especially all of the hearts of the people around me who annoy me the most. Right? Can you relate with me? But that's not life. So what do we do? We, when we see all of these, these things not working the way that we want, people not cooperating with our plans for them, we get angry, we get frustrated, and we say, oh, God, how could you allow for this pain, this brokenness, this, this to remain? So we get angry with God. And so sometimes, like Jonah, we throw a pity party and we say, I'm done. And this is at the heart of how the Western world views God and suffering. Here it is. Are you ready for some philosophy? This is actually really, really important because this is at the heart of most of our friends' doubts about who God is and why they might be able to trust him. We can't imagine how a good God could allow suffering. So people conclude that there must not be a good God that they can trust. Because they cannot imagine why a good God would allow suffering and pain, then therefore, that good God must not exist or at least can't be trusted or is not very good. That's how the argument goes. The problem is, is that this is an incredibly arrogant argument because it assumes that I know everything. It assumes that my idea of what is good and what is just and what is right and how the world should work is actually the way that it should be. Does that make sense? The greatest lessons I've learned in my life have not come from my wild successes. They've come from the moments of pain. I would not be the man I am today if I didn't have those moments of pain. But according to my worldview, I would erase all of those struggles and all of those moments of pain, and I would just be on vacation 24 hours a day. That's my view of life. It's wholly inadequate for what we need as human beings. But I'm arrogant enough to assume that I know all. And that's the problem with this argument. In addition to which, what I'm saying is that I want there this thing called justice and goodness to actually be true. And so because I don't see that work out in the world, I say, well, God, you must not exist. Which makes no sense whatsoever, because if I really want to live in a world that doesn't exist, then the only guiding principle left is natural selection. And what does natural selection offer us? If I can eat you, I win. If I'm stronger than you, if I can kill you faster than you can kill me, then I win. It's only about power and it's only about violence. That's the world I want to default into? That don't make no sense. Now, what I've just said is philosophically true. It's accurate. But if you have someone who's dying in a pile in your life, a friend, a spouse, a co-worker, 
child, grandchild, and you say, oh, your heart is full of grief, you're absolutely wrecked, let me tell you what's philosophically true in this moment and why your lament makes no sense. How do you think that's going to work out? Not so much, right? So what does? What does work when you're in grief, when you say, oh my gosh, God, how could you be good and allow all of this suffering? When you're in that lament, what do you need? What does your friend or your family member need when they're in that place? They need someone to join them. You have to feel what they feel. You have to be willing to suffer with them. Every single one of you is going to have an experience, and it will be agonizing, in which you will be utterly alone and in great pain. Amen? You know this. Some of you are in it right now. And what do you need? You don't need answers. You need someone with you. Someone to love you. Someone to listen to you even when you make no sense. That's what gets you through. So Jonah is absolutely wrecked. He's had a terrible couple of weeks. He's, he's run from God. He's been in a massive storm. He's been in the belly of a whale for three days. He smells awful. He desperately needs a shower. Now he's walked into the city of Nineveh and his worst nightmare has come through. They've repented and God is merciful. He, this is a very good, no, this is a bad, no good, how's it go? A no good, very bad, terrible day, right? This is what Jonah's gone through. And what does he need? He needs God to join him. And that's exactly what God does. Verse four. So Jonah's mad at God, and God says this, but the Lord replied, is it good for you to be angry? So notice that God is speaking to Jonah with gentleness, out of concern. There's no fury at Jonah for being angry or foolish. There's no punishment for Jonah uh, for being arrogant and unmerciful. God is asking a gentle question to get Jonah to think about the thing that's eating him alive. And what does Jonah do? Jonah's gone out, he, he, he leaves the city, he goes out, and he sits down at a place east of the city, that he might, and he makes himself a tent, so he unboxes his little REI tent, right? And he gets in there, and he looks at the city, hoping that within 30 days, it'll be absolutely destroyed. And God keeps on asking Jonah, like, is it good for you to be angry? Because God can see that something's eating Jonah alive. What's eating you right now? What is it that thing that's going on in your life that's just eating you up? It's in the, it's in the darkness. You haven't talked to anybody about it. Maybe you're drinking too much. Maybe you're looking at pornography at night. Maybe you're sleeping with someone that's not your spouse. I don't know what it is, but it's eating you. Maybe it's that resentment that you're holding on to. Maybe it's fear that just grips you that you will not let go of. What is it? 
Look, y'all, it takes time for our hearts to let go of the thing that we want more than God. But the way that you let go of that thing that's eating you, that you're holding on to, the way that you let go of it is that you have to have something better to hold on to in its place. Does that make sense? We won't give up the thing that we want the most unless we find something better. And so God is going to give Jonah something better. So what do we learn so far? Well, God wants to punish evildoers, and yet, or Jonah wants God to punish evildoers on one hand, as long as it's not him. And, and Jonah rails against God, and what does God do? God joins him. And what does Jonah do? He leaves the city waiting for the Ninevites to be destroyed. And this point in Jonah's story, the last couple of verses, is where the story gets even better. And God is going to ask questions and to do things here that expose what moves Jonah's heart, what's really at the core of what Jonah loves the most. You ready? Here it is. Let's read. Verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Finally, something's going right. Thanks, God, for the plant. Notice that, that Jonah's, Jonah was very happy. That In Hebrew, that's, his heart was warmed, had affection, right? There was like an attachment to this plant. That's what moved Jonah's heart was that something went right. Picking up what God's putting down? Verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. Yeah, baby. I love... I can just imagine the snickering going on in heaven. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Well, what happened? Well, nature happened. Life without God happened. A world where God did not intervene with mercy and grace happened. Natural selection happened. Plant grew, worm ate the plant. Weather happened. The strong ate the weak. And how does Jonah feel? He wants to die. It's not fair. Verse 9, read with me. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, Yes, it is. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Jonah is throwing a hissy fit, right? So God, once again, he's like, no, 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 let's not go down the self-pity party. Pity party wrote Jonah. So he's, he's trying to get Jonah to understand, to see what is governing your heart. Verse 10. But the Lord said, look, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and then it died. Should I not have concern the great city of Nineveh, 
But again, that word concern is that your heart would be moved. Should not my heart be moved by, your heart was moved by a plant. Should not my heart be moved by people? So God talks to Jonah about his heart. God's talking to you about your heart. Are you ready? Here's what God says to Jonah. This is his message for you this morning. Your heart is commanded by what you want. Your heart is set on your kingdom, your wishes, your hurts, and your ideas of what I should do about all of them. And if you don't get what you want, either run away or want to give up and die. Look, our hearts have been twisted and torn by the hurts of this life. We find ourselves simultaneously hell-bent on rebellion and doing things our own way. And when we don't get what we want, we either run away or we give up. Or like a two-year-old that you're trying to chase, and then once you try and lift up, they go boneless and collapse on the floor. Now notice the second thing that God points out to Jonah, right? It's the second thing that God points out to Jonah, and it's about God's heart. Next slide, Sydney. So verse 11, sorry, one, one back. Verse 11, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? God has concern. God's heart is moved for people who are lost and broken. He's got love and concern for people who are doing the right thing. He's got love and concern for us all. God is saying this, Jonah, I'm choosing to have my heart broken by evil people, including you. I'm choosing to grieve over the evil of the Assyrian people, choosing to be grieved by your choices, choosing to love you and the people you hate. Your heart is moved by a plant because you love what will make you happy. My heart is moved by people because I love people even when they break my heart. the God who loves you. Jonah is a lousy prophet. Like, he just stinks at his job. But the whole point of the book of Jonah is to point you to a much better prophet. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is a better prophet than Jonah, for when Jesus was asked to go to a place filled with evil and wicked people, that's called earth, he didn't run away Jesus gladly went. Jesus is a better prophet than Jonah for when Jesus preached God's message to an evil place and an evil people, he didn't just say four words. He poured out his entire life in order to communicate God's message of hope and salvation to us rebels. And Jesus is a better prophet than Jonah for when Jonah lamented that God sacrificed justice for mercy, Jesus didn't. Jesus instead sacrificed himself for you so that both justice and mercy might be upheld. Only on the cross is justice upheld that the things that are evil and wicked, that there is justice done 
A life is given. Blood is spilt because of that. And it happens to be Jesus. He took the punishment for evil done against you, for the evil that you've done upon his own shoulders until it killed him. Jesus bears all the consequences of our failures so that we might be forgiven, so that we might receive mercy. There's no other way for God to be just and merciful except by on the cross, where all of the justice Jesus takes upon his shoulders and all of the mercy he deserves is then given to you. Amen? And just as our Heavenly Father joined Jonah to help him understand, so Jesus joins you right now. If you're going to give up that thing that's eating you alive, you've got to hold on to something better. Jesus is saying to you this morning, hold on to me. Hold on to me. In the middle of your grief and your sorrow, hold on to me. In the middle of your heartache, Hold on to me. In the middle of you feeling stuck and unworthy, like you're never going to get out of this sin that you find yourself in, hold on to me. And you'll discover that Jesus has been holding on to you the entire time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you've moved every single mountain that would stand in the way between us and our salvation. Thank you that your promise remains, that you will love us, forgive us, be faithful to us. Jesus, we're so grateful for you. That you would suffer what we deserve so that we might receive all that you deserve. This is a miracle. And we gladly say yes. And God, for, for those of us who've never said yes before, God, for those of us who've said yes a hundred times and need to pray it again, Jesus, we invite you into our lives. Forgive us our sins. Deliver us from evil. We can't save ourselves, but you have. So God, I put all my trust in you, all my hope in you. Save me, Jesus. Forgive me. Transform me. And all God's people said,